Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah, Isaiah uh, chapter 1. Isaiah 1, we, um, in, in, our, in our home, in our pantry, I noticed a couple of months ago that there was a spider, a fake spider that was in the pantry there on one of the shelves. I'm not exactly sure who put it there. I, I have a good, good idea. It's probably uh, my second son, but um, I left it there when I noticed a couple of months ago because I was waiting for it to scare Jackie, right? I, I think that was the intent of it, so I thought, well, I'll just leave it there. And and a couple months go by, and it, it never scared her. You know, I think it was a little higher than her um, line of sight there. And so last Sunday after church, I noticed it again. And so I decide, this is just taking too long. So I grab it, and I go put it in uh, the little dispenser thing where you put uh, in the refrigerator, where you put the, in the water, you know, you get some water from the door there. And I was feeling pretty genius at the moment because— Catch this. There's a light in there, but it stays off until you put your glass in there, right? And so it's laying there, and so it's dark, so you don't really see it. Then you put your glass in there, and the light comes on, and then when you pull your glass back, you see that your hand was right by a spider. Yay, you know? And so I was excited about that. Not two minutes later, Jackie yells, and she's like, ah, who did this? And then she grabs the cup, and she grabs the spider, and with her left arm, left hand, she flings that thing at um, my oldest son, and about takes his head off, um, which was really impressive because it was really a very powerful throw, and it was with her left arm, and it was straight. Also, just keep in mind, if you scare Jackie, she will throw things at your face, so um, don't do that, you know? But one of the things that really kind of stands out about that story is that both her and I saw a spider and we grabbed it. We picked it up, right? We, we both picked up this spider. She was startled by it at first. I wasn't startled by it at all. If there was a spider uh, right now, if there was a spider that was on the chair next to you or something like that, most people don't immediately grab it or touch it. Why? Because eh, we don't like spiders. We don't like touching those things, you know. Uh, but you'll grab it if you know for a fact what? that it's fake. It can't hurt you. It looks like a spider. It has eight legs. It, it, it had what looked like hair. It was all um, black. It was pretty good size. It's about that size right there. And it looked like a spider, but it cannot do spider things. It can appear to be a spider, but even with the appearance of the spider, it cannot do, it does not do spider things. And therefore, we're not, we're not afraid of it. In Isaiah chapter 1, God confronts that very same thing. God confronts uh, not spiders, although it'd be great if there was a chapter somewhere where God said, they are evil, I agree with you. But he doesn't, all right? He made them and they're precious in his sight, right? And so they, they, he doesn't confront spiders. Instead, what he does is confront those who look like God followers, but in reality, they're not. They're fake God followers. Much like that fake spider, they are fake God followers. I want to pray, but before I do, I want to pray about the sermon. I want to pray about what we're about to talk about. But before I do, I want you to pray specifically this morning for you. We're going to talk about the sin of hypocrisy or the sin of fake religion. And, and here's the deal about it. 
All the sermons apply to all of you, all right? And me as well. All of the sermons apply to us, but we tend to sit in sermons thinking, this is really good for her, all right? We tend to think that it really applies to them. And so before we look at the text, I really want you to pray. I really want you to ask God, God, if there's some area of my life where I am fake in my religion— if I am fake in my relationship with you, if there's some area where I'm putting on a front, God, would you show that to me? I think we need to specifically pray that, and I'm going to pray it for you, as I hope you pray it for me as well. I think we need to specifically pray that because in that realm, we are often blind to it. We don't often see—I don't know a lot of people that are trying to be hypocritical. They don't realize they are being hypocritical. And so we have this beautiful gift called the Holy Spirit. And so what we need to do is ask Holy Spirit to show and reveal within us where we are being fake or hypocritical or not exactly consistent. All right? So let's do that right now. God, God, we come to you now recognizing that as great as we are, as kind of a group of people as this is gathered together— We are flawed and we are deeply broken. God, although we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, God, although we have trusted you as our Savior, we often or sometimes act inconsistent with our faith. And it's hard for us to see that. So God, right now I pray that your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would reveal in our hearts those areas that are inconsistent, where we are being hypocritical, God. And most of all, It would show us if it is that what we practice in our churches is not consistent with what we practice in our communities. I pray that you would bring that to light as well. We recognize and we acknowledge that it is particularly hard to see when we are being fake. But we know that you know, and we know that you will show us in a loving way. So right now, for the next few minutes, we pray that you would. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. So we are going to be, like I said, in Isaiah chapter 1. We ended a series last week on the Song of Songs, and we're going to look for a couple of weeks at Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. He's an Old Testament prophet. And if you just hear that word, you sort of think of a certain caricature. You think of a certain kind of guy, you know, long beard, maybe bald or or, or, or ratty hair, um, um, disheveled sort of look, standing in the middle of the desert, yelling at kings and whoever pass by talking about crazy things like snakes or conspiracy theories or something like that. We think of prophets that way. And in to large part, Isaiah really, and I'll be honest with you, he's that guy, okay? He is exactly how you're picturing it. The problem is that we stereotype prophets so much and what they're saying that uh, what, 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 how it applies to us, we miss, okay? We miss it for, for a number of reasons. Uh, you, you ever heard the idea of, uh, or heard the phrase, somebody will say, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Anybody ever heard somebody say that or, or said to themselves? Yeah. People say that in our common culture, and then they will follow that phrase up by saying something predictable, all right? You know, something that they predict. Say, so I'm not a prophet nor the son of the prophet, but um, it's, it, it's, it's, we're probably going to have some weather next week. You know, they just say some stuff like that. You know, it's, just, it's not really a prediction. You're just predicting, okay? And it means 
What it means is underlying in our culture, when we think of prophets, we primarily think of them as telling the future, that they are going to predict something that hasn't yet happened. However, in Scripture, that's not exactly what a prophet is or what a prophet does. A better idea is not that a prophet tells the future, but a prophet tells the truth. Okay, that's what an Old Testament uh, biblical prophet does. They tell the truth. So in some cases, God will say to them, hey, listen, prophet, Elijah, Isaiah, whomever, Amos, um, here's what I want you to say. It hasn't happened yet, but here's what I want you to say. And then they go off and say it. This is the truth. This is what God told me to say. Sometimes he's just saying, here's what I already said, and they're not doing it. So stand up and tell everybody they need to do this, all right? And so the prophet will go out and say the truth. In both cases, the prophet is just saying what God told him to say. It is the truth. In both cases, there is a, a contemporary application Isaiah is speaking to people who lived at a time, real people in a real time, in a real setting, and in a real culture. In fact, Isaiah is speaking to his nation who happens to be uh, sort of on the tail end of experiencing plenty or benefit or or, um, success and progress. They're, They're all doing pretty well. A lot of them have this retirement fund sort of set aside. Um, Profit loss looks good, you know, on the books. They've got nice families, little suburbs, sidewalks, the dog, three and a half kids, all the stuff that people are liking. That's what Judah at this time is is sort of experiencing. However, the, the leaders of that kingdom, the southern kingdom, Judah, the leaders weren't really acting God-like. They weren't acting like God. They were acting like they were gods, but they weren't acting like the one true God. And so Isaiah's message throughout the whole book is standing up into that and saying, hey, I know everything looks good, but if y'all don't stop, God's going to be mad, all right? Everything looks okay, but if you don't turn your hearts towards God, then danger that's waiting on the outskirts of our kingdom, he's going to let them in. That's what Isaiah is saying here in part. This whole idea of judgment is coming, even though things look all right. In verse 1, it says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. All of those are contemporary people. All of those are the kings of that time. So what we're tasked with doing is we read this text and then we say, What did it mean at that time? And once we see what it means at that time to the original audience, then we say, then what does that mean for me right now? Until you understand this, you don't really grasp what it means for you. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. That's exactly what we're going to attempt to do. And the section in chapter 1 that we're looking at begins in verse 11. Let me read some of this text to you, 11 through 15. What are all your sacrifices to me? This is God. God speaking through Isaiah to the people. He says, What are all your sacrifices to me? asked the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, and male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths 
and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. And even if you offer countless prayers, I'm not going to listen. I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. God sounds irritated. God sounds really mad. And what he does is he, he lays out essentially the extent of Jewish worship at that time. He's talking about offerings and, and, and male goats and, and new moons and Sabbaths and solemn assemblies and prayers. And he said, I don't even care if you lift your hands up. I don't like any of this stuff. He's talking about the full extent of the way that they worshiped at that time. Now, almost none of that relates to us, right? I mean, last time that we offered a male goat during a new moon was like, I can't remember. This church is 100 years old. I'll have to look at the, the records, but I, I'm pretty sure that Second Baptist has never offered a male goat during a new moon um, with hands lifted up in prayer. If we did that, <laughs> that would be like really uh, weird, right? We'd make the news. And so um, we don't do that sort of stuff, but Baptists have, we have like, a, we have stuff. We have stuff we do, right? We have banana pudding. We have potlucks. Um, used to, we'd get together every fifth Sunday and sing hymns. Um, we'd sing the first, the second, and the fourth verse. Um, we would sing, uh, you know, like there's a song called Power in the Blood, and we tried to stick, um, stick 16 powers in that. Anybody ever do that? Show me your hands if you know what I mean when you try to put 16 powers in the blood. All right? The rest of you, it'll come up in Baptist history class if you ever take that. All right? It was fun, kind of. I don't know why we did it. But we did it. You know, another thing that Baptists do, I've often joked, is Baptists melt in the rain. And so if it starts raining, nobody's going to come to church because they melt in the rain. Another thing is that Baptists think the word amen means sit down. So if everybody's standing up and somebody says a prayer and, and it ends, and everybody's like, in Jesus' name, amen, everybody just starts sitting down. There's, Nobody told you to sit down. Everybody's like, amen. Amen means sit down. Don't know why Psalm says sit down so many times, but it does what Baptists do. There's this range of Baptist experience, right? Um, like at one time we had things called training unions on Sunday nights. And now we tell people to scan QR codes to show how they can give online. All right. So there's a range of Baptist experience. Could you imagine if God said all that stuff? I can't stand it. I can't stand you. He says that. What if he laid it all out there? All your powers in the blood are detestable to me. All of your singings and, and your eating and, and, and your fellowship, they make me sick. In fact, God uses the word, I hate those things. Could you imagine if God like laid that out for you? And what's, what's even more confusing is that in Leviticus 1 through 7, a book that Moses wrote, God told him to do all of that. He says right there in one of the lines, he says, your prescribed, your prescribed festivals, you know who prescribed all of it? God did. He told him, this is what you will do, when you will do it, and the way you will do it. In fact, one of the verses in Leviticus literally says, God says, and that, when you do that, it will be a pleasing aroma to me. It'll smell good. It'll be sweet. It'll be nice. I will love when you do that. And somewhere between Leviticus and Isaiah, God is like, I can't stand you. You're the worst. So what happened and got him to that point? There's a couple of clues there. He says, your iniquity 
with the festival. In verse 13, he says, In 15, your hands are covered with blood. There's this breakdown of what they're doing and why they're doing it. What they're doing and why they're doing it. Make, make no mistake about this. God is talking to the religious people, like all the good Jews, all the ones that are the good old boys. Nobody in here would have been questioned on their morals or their values or anything like this. All these folks go to um, Shabbat. They all um, practice the Torah. They all, they all memorize the first five books. These are the really good Christians. In our world, these are the really good evangelicals. They do all the right stuff. They like listen to Air One and they have um, Jesus t-shirts and the bumper stickers. All. They, they are like super religious, right? These are the people that he's talking to and yet he's pointing out, you've mixed it up. What you're doing and the reason you're doing it, they don't line up. They don't line up. He's about to tell them a little bit more on why, but essentially he's saying there's this big clue. I can tell, this is what God says, I can tell you don't mean any of it. Like you're doing the right things, but you don't actually mean any of it. He's about to tell us why. There's a story of the first king of Israel. His name's Saul. The first king of Israel's name was Saul. A lot of people think it's David, but David's the greatest king. Saul was right before David. David's the second. Saul was going off to war one day, and God told him exactly what to do, and Saul didn't do it. He didn't, he didn't listen to God. Why? Because he thought, well, I don't, I don't need to listen to God. I'm the king. I'm the best looking. I'm the tallest. I do good stuff all the time. And so he kind of obeyed God, but then he kind of didn't, which means he all the way didn't, right? And so he comes back and the prophet is talking to him and the prophet is confronting him on, on not doing the full obedience, essentially. I'm just trying to sum this story up. And Saul responds and says, hey, I'm offering a sacrifice. Like literally right now, Saul was burning some stuff in honor of God when the prophet Samuel walks up to him and says, hey, you're not doing right. And Saul says, what do you mean I'm not doing right? I'm doing religion. I'm doing all the religion stuff. This is how it looks when you do it. I'm doing this the right way. And Samuel responds to him. Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, he says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. So Samuel tells the prophet, or tells the king, the prophet tells the king, yeah, you're, you're doing the religion stuff, but you didn't actually obey God. Jesus says in the New Testament, he says, if you love me, then you will keep my commands. You will do what I said to do. This is the disconnect as Isaiah stands in front of a very wealthy, very powerful, very prosperous nation. And he says, you look like you're doing it, but you're not really doing it. Uh, Isaiah 1 verse 16, God gives back sort of the solution. This is the way we're going to fix this. He says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. And then he says how you're going to do that. You need to wash yourself this way. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's case. Those five things there. Stop doing what is evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. And, and plead the case of the fatherless and 
the widow. These are how he says, we're going to make this right. And it sounds disjointed. It sounds like it doesn't really go together, but, but don't go there. It, it, it does completely go together. It sounds like what God was talking about was all this religious stuff, Sabbaths, new moons, and all that kind of stuff. And then he jumps over here to all this social stuff, like, like oppression and justice and, and widows and orphans. It sounds like these two things don't go together, but there is a term in there that, that ties it all together, and it's a term wash. It's a religious, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sacrament. It is a sacred sort of action that God is calling them to do. You need to cleanse your soul. Well, you don't cleanse your soul with like soap and water for 20 seconds, right? You don't, you don't wash your soul that way. There's these actions which reveal the heart. Those five things. It says, stop doing what is evil. Stop doing evil. Like that's a really good, I love that kind of advice. Stop it, all right? You're doing something bad. Stop it. So he says, evil means that you are using, it literally is a term that means you are using your strength to hurt somebody else, to threaten or hurt somebody else in either physical form or their status within the community. He was pointing out that most of all, one of the problems here was the leaders of Judah were not using their leadership to shepherd the people, but instead were hurting them. Stop doing evil to other people. Instead, he says, and so do good. I, obviously good means, if you're telling them you're using your position to hurt other people, then good means to use your position to help other people. There's something else that's pointed out in just those two statements. Stop doing evil, do good, means neutrality is not the answer. They couldn't just stand there and say, yeah, but I didn't do anything wrong. Like, stop doing evil. Yeah, y'all, y'all that are doing evil. God doesn't want you to be neutral. God doesn't want the followers of God to be neutral. He wants them to be actively good. It's not just enough to be not bad. You need to be actively good, which transitions right into the next line where it says pursue justice. Pursue justice. Now this word is sort of heavy in our culture right now. It's a loaded word, especially if you use the terminology of social justice. It's, it's weighted down to where we're almost not allowed to say it anymore because somebody somewhere is going to get upset about it. So for just a second, pause all that and set it aside. And all I'm telling you is the biblical view of justice. In the biblical view of justice, it has two parts. There are these two concepts that go together. One author, one commentator said that justice in the Old Testament is like grace in the New Testament. And they're not foreign to one another. They're deeply related. It's the theme of the Old Testament, justice. But it's not just justice the way that we think about it. The one part. One part we think of justice is accurate, and it's the, it's the, um, it's the divvying out of, of, of penalty for those who break the law. That's just. So there was an action that was not just. And so it's the duty of the leadership or the judges or whatever to say that was wrong. There was, a, there was, a, there was a, a something done wrong. And so it needs to be made whole either through some sort of sentence or some sort of penalty or something like that. That is justice. There are laws. They need to be upheld. And if they're not upheld, then there's justice. The other side, though, of justice, and it's not a different or unrelated side, it's the other side. Not only handling, like, like an easy way to say it is this, it's not only handing out the bad, the punishment, but also it's the, it's the leveraging of the good, the good things. Like us as a community have good resources collectively that we are 
because we are God followers, supposed to divvy out to people. There are good things that are supposed to be handed out to people in some sort of system. Now, what I found interesting about this was the way that different cultures do this. I never really thought about this. But in some cultures, they have what's called a caste system. And so there's like people uh, in their view that are of this certain level, and they're always going to be of this certain level. And then there's other people that are of this level, and other people of this level, other people of this level. India is famously, or was famously, part of the caste system. And in that system, the good of the community is handed out, weighted toward the higher caste, and nothing toward the bottom caste. You get that? That, that makes sense. Another, but that one we recognize always. We would recognize that as being contrary to uh, all people are created in the image of God. And so that's contrary. It's not biblical. Another system that we are familiar with just because of being Americans, but um, it's not one that we do, is like a royalty system, right? We don't have that system. In fact, we fought a war to make sure we don't have that system. But for whatever reason, we're all kind of still obsessed with that system. So we kind of watch it and do cartoons and stuff that all have that system. And in that system, royalty get the bulk of the good of the community. And then everybody else just kind of like makes do, right? And for whatever reason, we think that that's romantic and, and, and nice. And we look at that and like, that's so sweet. Um, but it's really not. And so all of that is weighted towards that. And so the question is, in the Old Testament, when God sets up a culture and a society, what system does he use? What system does he use? In our system, in the American system, we use... Um, Essentially, hard work. That if you earn it, earning it gets you. And there's, that's a good system. I, I mean, I say that's a good system. I'm an American, so I say that's, that, one, that one works. But in God's system, it's based on one word, need. Who needs it? There's this good of a culture. There's this good of a society. There's a good of a community. We all got stuff. And if someone needs it, then God says, give it to them. It's not a matter that they earned it or that they deserve it or that they're entitled to it. God just says, if there's a need, meet the need. And that you, with your strength and your ability, regardless of how you got it, maybe you're a higher caste, maybe you're royalty, maybe you worked hard and earned it. Either way, anyway, if they have a need, whoever they is, then you give them that need. This is what God says is just. It's justice. This is why like the story of Ruth or those kind of stories that are in our Bible where she was poor, immigrant, not a Jew, not even a God-fearer at that time. She had a need and Boaz was just in providing for that need. And how did he do it? He didn't let everybody like pick up all the stuff on the ground. He let her pick up the stuff. That's how God set it up. And God has always set it up that way. That people who follow God are supposed to look for those who have a need. And if they have, they give it freely to the people who have a need. Well, what if they don't, what if it's not their right to have? God says, who cares? Well, what if they didn't earn it? Who cares? They have a need. And so you give them the need. Whatever they do with it or however they got to where they get that's not what God is concerned with. God says you are supposed to do or pursue justice. And it, and, it, and, it, and it dovetails into the next one, right? They all relate to one another. That's how God talks. Everything relates to one another. And the next one says, correct the oppressor. This would imply, right, that there is somebody 
some group of somebodies holding other people down. That's what oppression means. It's right there in the Bible. I think all of you should have a Bible that says something about justice and oppression right there. That's just what it means. It's implied. And you know what? If you've ever read history or studied history at all, that's always going on in all societies, in all cultures, for all time. There's some group that is trying to hold some other group down for usually selfish reasons. So something is happening there, and God is telling them to correct the oppressor. Again, it's not enough to be neutral, to just stand there and say, but I'm not oppressing anybody. God didn't say you were. I'm talking to Jews, not y'all. We're talking about their meaning back then. He's saying, the, the people could have rose up and said, I'm not oppressing anybody. To which God would say, I didn't say you were. I'm just saying some are, so correct them. And that's where it really spoke to me because a lot of times in the problems that happen in cultures and people, interpersonal relationships, in families, in churches, in communities, that there is this group that is hurt, there's this group that's hurting, and then there's this larger group that literally could fix it, but they stand back and say, it's not affecting me, and I didn't do it, so I have no case in it. And so they stand back. That's not what he's claiming there. What God says to them is to correct the oppressor, to go up and say, that's not right, and it's not going to happen anymore. And somebody said, well, who are you? No, nope, it's who are we? And we said, no, right? So that's what correct the oppressor means, which again flows straight into this other concept of the orphan and the widow, which we're very familiar with that idea. And of course, that's not specifically talking about widows and orphans, although it is specifically, but it has greater implications. With the orphan and the widow, it's different than the person in need who uh, maybe can provide for themselves, but they just need help providing for themselves. An orphan and a widow is a person in their culture and in their community that had no means of providing for themselves. A widow at that time couldn't own land, couldn't make an income, anything like that. So God says, again, she has a need. They have a need. You go fix it. Could you imagine if one of the Jews looked back at God and says, I didn't make her a widow. I didn't make them orphans. So it's not my responsibility. It's not my, it's not, I'm not to blame for this. I think sometimes we, we start there like, to do good means you only do good if you're to blame for the problem. And there's nothing Christian about that. In fact, in the very next concept that's going to come up here, it shows us this. See, what God is saying is, you're being super religious, but it, I know that it doesn't mean anything to you because out here, it's not changing your life. You're not caring for anybody out there. You're practicing the practices, and I know. So God knows our brains. He knows what we're thinking. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're feeling. But in this, I almost hear God saying, I don't even have to be God to tell you, you don't mean any of this. I don't even have to be omniscient to tell you that your religious practices are fake and empty because your beliefs aren't lived out there. They're good in the temple, but they're weak in the town. You're great in church. You're not doing anything in the community, which says to me, there's nothing really going on in your heart. That's what's going on to this point in 18 through 20. Listen to these words. 
if God sounded irritable before, this one is a little scary. God says, come, let's settle this. Have you ever been like in an argument or seen somebody in an argument and then they like walk towards the backyard and they're rolling up their sleeves saying, let's settle this? That's what God just did to Judah. Come on, let's, let's settle this right now, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. That's so fascinating because what God's saying is, you're to blame. All y'all did something wrong and you're to blame, but he says, I'm going to fix it. That's what God says, right? It's almost like God says, you have a need and I didn't do it. In fact, I'm completely innocent on this. You need protection and provision and forgiveness. You need all this stuff. And God looks at it and says, and I'm going to provide it. It's, here's the crazy, it's almost like God is asking us to do what he himself did. To look and see a need and within our power, fix the need. There's a real need here. They really did need food. They really did need protection. This whole thing is incredibly generous on God's part. You see, what he's saying is, um, I didn't break this. I didn't stop believing in you. I didn't stop acting like you were real. You did that. And when you did that, you stepped outside of my protection and my provision. But, he says in 20, uh, or 19, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." If you're willing and obedient, I love that because it just sounds like God is saying, hey, just try at it. Just try to be nice to each other. Just try to go find me. Just look, I know you're not perfect at all this kind of stuff, but just try. And if you try, if you are willing and you obey him, then he will protect you. He will provide for you. That's what he says to the Jews. And obviously that's the implication to us. That if you believe in Jesus, then it should affect the way we worship. For some people, you're going to raise your hands. For some people, you're going to be real quiet and somber, and you're going to think about it. That's great. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that you are worshiping, that you are worshiping God, and then it's going to affect the way you act when you go out of here, that you're going to constantly be looking for somebody who has a need, who has a problem, and you're going to do what you can to fix it, even if, and particularly if, you had nothing to do with the problem in the first place. You're going to look for a way. Why? Because it's godlike, because it's just. I have seen people pass away. I have seen people die. And everybody stands around and goes, but they looked fine. They looked so healthy. They looked completely okay just a couple of days ago. And now they're dead. And, and then once they're dead, we, we find out that on the inside, they were eaten up with some sort of disease or cancer or something like that where nobody knew anything. They just died. And everybody's like, they look fine on the outside. That is the deadly thing that people are doing with their own souls. That you're living your whole life looking fine on the outside. You're singing all the powers in the blood. You're eating all the banana pudding. You know how to do all of these things. You know how to find all the verses in the Bible. You even know the answers. You look fine on the outside, but the inside is rotted and corrupt and dying. And it is deadly. It is the deadliest sort of deadly. That you would spend eternity dying, or you'd spend eternity in the judgment of God all the while you lived looking fine, sounding fine, but you never trusted 
Jesus. James says in the New Testament, kind of like a New Testament prophet, he tells the truth. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Same sort of kind of language. You double-minded, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, this whole thing is not about that they weren't meeting up to the religious standards. In fact, they were. The problem was, it was their religion. It was their relationship, not their religion. There is this thing going around. People are talking about uh, uh, zoo animals. Anybody like going to the zoo? We love going to the zoo, okay? So like every town we go to, we try to go to the zoo. Apparently, the zoo animals are not doing well in quarantine. Um, the zookeepers are letting people know that they're struggling. Uh, there's a bird, a uh, cockatoo, in, I can't say this word, um, Sever- Severville, Severville, Tennessee. Anybody know where that place is? Severe. Severeville. See, somebody in the last service corrected me too, and I'm not, I'm just not going to get it. Severeville, Tennessee. There's a place there called the Rainforest Adventures Discovery Zoo. That's a mouthful. The Rainforest Adventures Discovery Zoo has a cockatoo named Roe, and Roe will sing all the time. Well, they call it singing. I think birds scream. Um, but the cockatoo will scream the words, row, row, row your boat. And all the people, the humans, will finish the song. And it makes the bird happy, right? Apparently, uh, it makes the bird happy. Well, since quarantine, the zookeepers have said that the bird has started not singing the song. Instead, she will say, row, row. Hmm. And we'll look at the other birds like, why aren't you singing with me, right? People sing with me. In fact, there's sometimes now she doesn't even start the song. A lot of times she'll start the song and she won't do it. It turns out the cockatoo misses you, all right? Turns out the bird actually misses you, which isn't that surprising because your dog misses you. Your cat doesn't, but you, you know, your other animals miss you. So the cockatoo misses you. Hey, listen to me. When we read Isaiah or, or Obadiah or Zephaniah, Amos, we read these prophets and we, we get this picture of God like this Zeus figure and this white beard on his throne. He's like, ugh, ugh, I hate humans. Kill them all. You know, like, like that's sort of the impression that we get from that. But if you read verse 2, the context of what's going on in Isaiah is set this way. God says, or, or, you know, the prophet says, Listen to heaven and pay attention to earth, for the Lord has spoken. These are the words of the Lord. This is what God says. I have raised children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel doesn't know. My people do not understand. At the end of verse four, he says, they have abandoned me. They have despised me. They have turned their backs on me. You see, the whole concept here is not that God is mad. In fact, I think this is super freeing. God is not saying you're not meeting my religious standards. He's saying, you don't have a relationship with me, and that hurts. I want to have a relationship with you, and I know you don't have a relationship with me, even though you meet my religious standards, because you don't care about them. That's the simple philosophy that is broken down in all of this. So the question is two questions. Uh, It's sort of like a test, a diagnostic test. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? 
Has he changed your heart to the point that you worship differently here? That when you hear songs about the blood of Jesus, that it's moving to you. When you hear the words of God talk about the grace that he gave you, it's, it's life-changing, it's life-altering to the point that when you leave here, you are looking for people who have a need and you are going to meet that need regardless of who caused that need. That if there is oppression, you will speak up even if you are not the oppressor. That if there is a hurting, a person that can't provide for themselves, or a person that can provide for themselves, but they have a need, you will stand up and say, that's not right. That's not going to keep happening. Whatever the situation is. Because here's the deal. A faith that does not change your life does not give you life. A faith that does not change the way you live never gave you life in the first place. The Queen Mary was the largest ocean liner when she set sail. 1936 is when she was commissioned and she was out in the waters there. 31 years later, Long Beach, California bought her, uh, decommissioned her. They were going to turn her into a floating hotel there off of the beach of, uh, of Long Beach, California. 31 years and uh, she had three giant smokestacks, these huge, you know, like tubes. I don't know a lot about boats, but these giant tubes that smokes came out of, you know. For 31 years, they were painted this bright orange color, which I love anything painted orange. This big bright orange tube, smokestacks that would billow out there. 31 years, like I said, Long Beach, California, bought the ship, pulled it into the harbor, started to renovate her, make her nice, clean her all up. They pulled those smokestacks off, those giant metal tubes. They pulled them off like this and set them on the shore. They were going to set them on the shore so they could refinish them and put them back, right? You need to do that and make it nice because it's a hotel now. It's not a boat. So they picked it up and they put it on the shore. And you know what happened to all three of them? They crumbled. All three smokestacks just disintegrated and crumbled on the shore. You know what they came to find out was for 31 years, salt water had eroded away the steel inside of those smokestacks. Those smokestacks, when Long Beach, California bought them, were 30 layers of dried paint. No metal in it at all. Completely dried paint. Looked good until you set it down and the whole thing crumbled away. Sadly, a ton of Christians are living 10, 20, 30 years looking good, but there's nothing on the inside. The invitation today is that today you would believe Jesus. You would trust him in a way that changes what you do out there. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.